Welcome to the One House Podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have John Dio, MBA at UC Berkeley Haas. John is a product manager and business professional with experience helping scale venture-backed EV and edtech startups. At Haas, John has been part of the Consortium for Graduate Study of Management, the Graduate Assembly, Haas Consulting Club, and Q at Haas. John, welcome and great to have you on the show. So excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely, John. Just for some background, you know, you and I know each other. We were in class together in the MBA program. And my understanding is you're a double bear, what we call at Haas, someone who's gone to Cal for undergrad and Haas for the MBA program. But I'd love for you to just start, where does your story begin? And did you always know you'd be doing all the cool things that you've done in life when you were a kid growing up? Um, honestly, I actually didn't know that I was going to do a lot of the cool things that I got to be able to do, you know, during my time, not only at Haas, but just in life in general. I think for me, it was actually really hard to picture what life was going to be like post high school, mainly because I was a child of immigrants and also an immigrant myself. So when I was growing up, I actually lived in the Philippines for the first eight years of my life. Uh, and the reason how my family got here was actually through a family petition. And mm. this was back when my grandfather had served in the Navy. He served around the time of the Korean War and then went back to the Philippines, did his whole degree. But his story of just immigrating to the U.S. was really powerful for us because he initially had joined the U.S. as an international student studying at SF State in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I really learned from talking to him kind of near his end of life was his journey to immigrate here in the U.S. And I found out pretty late on that he was studying at SF State and within like six months, his like family had called him and he was like the oldest of, I think, maybe four or five children. And being the oldest, they were really asking him like, hey, like you're in the U.S., you obviously you might be able to find a job there that can uh, support us. And so he ended up quitting SF State within six months of being there and started working in the farm fields in Stockton. So in the 50s, I learned that he was actually one of those manongs. That's what we called them in like the Filipino historical archives, like the, one of the manongs who, who worked in the farm fields, who traveled up and down like the grapevine kind of working. And then I think pretty later on, he ended up being recruited into the Navy and he ended up being uh, shipped to Korea during the in the Korean Peninsula during the Korean War. And luckily, there wasn't really a lot of escalation or instigation that he experienced there. But some things that just come to mind for me when I talked to him about it was just, you know, the subtle racism that was actually happening to him in, in real time there. He worked in the a cafeteria as a cook or one of the other sort of manual labor sort of work. And it was one of those things where like he just had to roll with the punches and laugh it off and not ruffle any feathers because he had family in the Philippines that he was taking care of. And then so when he finished his rotation there in his service, he actually went back to the Philippines for three decades or so, finishing up college there, working under the Marcos era as one of the agriculture managers in the province. And I think during the 1980s, it was really around the whole family re reunification experience of, of Reagan, where they 
eventually gave citizenship for past members of the military, those who served even back when it was like the 1950s. And so like my grandfather actually naturalized in the late 80s and ended up really trying to not only work again in the States, he actually did a second stint here in the U.S. for like about a decade or so, just working to, again, support his children and his grandchildren. And he, one of the things that he actually really helped us out with was the family petition. And he petitioned all of his children and their spouses and their children to come to the States eventually. And hopefully that would be something that that could come at a nice time. Uh, however, those sorts of petitions are always backed up. And so for my family, we had filed in 94 or actually 92, just before I was born. But we didn't necessarily get that permanent residency or even citizenship until like when I was in 2012. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was like a long time. It was a long time. And so, and really like, I think what really got us to the States was like my family's tenacity to look at the situation, assess it, and then see what are like some of the different scenarios that we can we can try to extract ourselves from, you know, negative situations. One of the reasons why we really needed to go to the States pretty early on was actually because of me. I'm the youngest of four children. The age gap between me and like my uh, sister, who's the third, third one is about eight years. And between me and the oldest, 14 years. I actually was born with scoliosis. And it was the case of scoliosis where it's not the type that you just catch in, in like high school or like middle school where you're like, okay, they're slouching a little bit. Maybe that we could put them on the brace. It was the type that actually, it was uh, pretty aggressive. When I was eight years old, I think the pediatrician in the Philippines was very adamant that like, hey, like we need to get him proper resources, maybe in the States. And, you know, that was what got my mom to really um, get us going to move to the States because I needed to get like surgery, spinal surgery, like pretty quickly. And for us, we ended up kind of looking through a different legal avenues of mm. migrating. So my family had, there was a legal technicality back then, and I won't go into too much detail, but basically during the Bill Clinton era, there was a point in which if a family had arrived in the U.S., already and overstayed their visa that they could wait until their visa application or their family petition became current or basically able to be change of status and they wouldn't be they wouldn't essentially be deported and so gotcha. that was like the entry point for me growing up where i was living in this limbo of I'm undocumented at every facet of life, yet I'm not necessarily in fear of being deported, but also I don't have any sort of legal recourse or amenities or even just like services that could be that could be awarded to me as as someone who was growing up pretty poor. But luckily, um, my family was able to kind of muster up the resources pretty around like 2001. It was right after the 9-11 attacks. And I remember like my family being very direct with how we were going to approach it because at that point, my father, my eldest brother, and my other brother mm -hmm. had already been in the States under working under somewhat of a tourist visa. And then they were telling us back in the Philippines with just me, my sister, and my mom, like what was going down here in the US. It was like, 
all hell is breaking loose. They might be closing the border. You might want to come as soon as you can. And that was like the precipice of like my entrance to the U.S., like chaotic to an extent. I remember like my only plane ride for a long time was actually going here to the States from the Philippines. And we had booked economy and the flight stewardess actually bumped all of us to business class because the plane was so empty that there's no point in us trying to go down there, like, just come up here, like, hon. And that was, like, one of those instances where me as a child, I didn't even know what was going on. I was just happy to be, mm-hmm. you know, in a comfy seat, or I was just happy to, like, you know, it feels like a field trip. You're like, I'm moving somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But then later on, it was just, like, kind of those things that after analyzing, I was like, wow, that is a lot to go through. Man, that's amazing, John. It sounds like even before you got to the States, your journey Definitely wasn't easy. There was a lot of formative experiences that I, at least I I took away from that experience. What was it like when you got to the States and just even going to school and things like that? What was that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, that experience in itself was pretty much a culture shock. I luckily joined around like the fall semester of kind of Mm. 2001. One of the downsides of immigrating at that point was they didn't necessarily do a lot of assessments to determine what grade level you are. They just like hand waved it. They're like, okay, you're, you were in grade two in the Philippines. We'll have you in grade two again here. So they actually technically held me back for a year. And I found myself like at that point, it's like, you know, there wasn't really a lot of self advocating. We just had to nod our heads because like we were brand new here and okay, we'll work it out. But I think the culture shock was pretty different for me. It was like, I was trying to learn English a lot. I was trying to be social as much as I can, but also was coming to terms with a lot of things about myself that I later would probably realize as like my gay tendencies, you know, would have hinted at my sexual orientation. And before, I just remember growing up like in elementary school and not only just trying to pick up the culture of what it is to be like a man in like the US, because then I always have mm-hmm. to kind of translate it to some extent back to my Filipino culture. And then also just navigating that this slow discovery and being kind of at a point where people are telling you who you are without you even knowing who you are. So like even as early as like third, fourth, maybe even like fifth grade, I was starting to get bullied. They were talking, they were, they would throw slurs at me like fag or gay or homo or whatever. And at that point, I was just like, I don't even know what these mean. I'm barely picking up the language, let alone like, how am I going to pick up the slurs? And so, yeah, it was one of those things where just, again, had to roll with it. And definitely there were points where I definitely let it get to the best of me. So sometimes I just, I would not want to go to school. I just have to tell my mom, I'm like, I'm sick. I did not want to go to school today, please. And it was really one of those things where I had to kind of really make a decision as to how I was going to let the external forces of my life dictate how I was going to live my life to its fullest. And I think there was just a point in my life I think near and towards middle school, and it was a tipping point. There was a particular event that happened to me in middle school where it was around pickup time. I was walking out to the plaza area and like one of my classmates, that one of the bullies that had been tormenting me throughout the year, like verbally, but not like ever physically, ran up to me and then opened his water bottle and like poured water on me and called me a fag. And... 
it was like, of course, it was like a traumatizing moment at that point. And of course, I really felt bad and I hated this person for a really long time. And but for me, I was like, what does that even like? First of all, like, what does that even mean? And how does being gay like equate to being something negative and that like I would be treated this way? And so for me, it was like a lot of more internal soul searching of, okay, like people are telling me who I'm supposed to be or whatnot, but like I've never actually taken a time to take a look at who I am and how I see myself. And it was really like at those tipping points where I really stopped trying to listen to whatever, all the other chatter that was around me, that was about me or not about me. And was really like, okay, I need to set the narrative like straight mm -hmm. up, like I'm not going to hold back. Like I have to set the narrative moving forward because I am, this is my chapter book and I, I could either be a bystander in this or I could tell it from my first person point of view. And that's kind of like the tipping point in middle school where I kind of just started to muster up the courage. I was, you know, every time that like they'd retort that, I'd be like, so what, whatever. And that kind of took the power away from it. Once I didn't oh. care, they no longer thought it was fun. Oh, I guess it was just like one of those things where like, if you take away the bully's power to affect you in that way, then there, it's no longer fun for them. And so for me, it was just one of those things where once I kind of came into my own in middle school and in high school, it was really kind of an up and up in terms of like my experiences in terms of like social life and whatnot. Um, however, like, of course, like being undocumented still added its own flair of mm. difficulty, especially when it came to like applying for colleges. Yeah. Yeah. John, what was that experience like? First of all, that's an amazing just story of triumph and overcoming. You know, you and I sat in a class a whole, a whole semester together and, and I didn't get to hear that story, but it is just so powerful. And I know you were super involved in college and even at Haas, you know, what was it like going from being a high schooler with your situation of documentation and then also, you know, having experienced and overcome all of this. And now you're thinking about, okay, finishing high school, going, thinking about going to college. What was that experience like for you? And, and what was going through your mind as you were going through that process? Yeah, that's definitely a good question. And I think that um, at least what was going through my mind, honestly, at that point was honestly just like looking at the different possibilities. Um, I remember like in junior year of high school, I created scenarios A through L, where uh, I had essentially kind of dictated like what my prime choices are in terms of uh, contingency plans. Because a lot of these things when you're thinking about college, especially when you're undocumented, is like, A, how are you going to fund this? And B, how is their support system overall? Because the price tag is one thing. The support for undocumented students is also another thing. So I remember just like applying um, during high school for college. And it was one of those things. The first thing they ask you is your social security number. And mm. that is always a question that was so like contentious for me. Like, how is this like nine digit number? How is that the thing that's going to prevent me from attending my dream school? And so like, it was usually like coupled with applying with what information I have and then supplementing with my actual story and like my statements and for me, for a long time, I really wanted to attend liberal arts college that was like a private institution like Oberlin College or Pitzer in Claremont. I remember just kind of having that, you know, all-American fantasy of what college would be. And to be truthful, I actually applied to over 18 like private colleges 
just to oh, see wow. like what my options might be. I got into a couple programs, but their financial aid was not strong enough to actually help out someone like me. And then I applied to the UCs and uh, Riverside came through, Irvine came through, and then like UCLA came through, and then finally Berkeley. And so for a while, like I had grown up in Los Angeles with my family mm -hmm. and like it was a contentious debate whether or not I was going to go to Berkeley or UCLA. And I remember just going to Cal Day, actually, for undergrad. And it was one of those things where the first, like every Cal Day, sometimes you have a, like a set priority agenda, I think, that's preset for you. But for me, I actually customized my Cal Day plan because I had to hit up the Bridges Multicultural Center and the Undocumented Student Center. I think at that point, they were still kind of mixed together with Bridges. So I remember just going through Cal Day and uh, while people were checking out like the dorms and like all the other cool stuff that's in, on campus, I was going to financial aid, trying to talk to people. Mm -hmm. I was going to, you know, Bridges, trying to talk to people. Berkeley had this really interesting requirement for uh, students of my background, which is a little bit of like collegiate prep. Um, aside from just getting in, I had a requirement to successfully pass Summerbridge, which is the, I think, the preparatory sort of uh, summer program for under-resourced communities, students, etc. And I also had to not only figure out funding for my own like fall and spring life, but also funding for like this summer program that I'm required to go to. And so like, luckily everything that fell into place, I was able to kind of advocate my way through. And of course, with my situation being low income and coming from a under-resourced background, I really was adamant to like apply for to as many scholarships I would take undocumented students in, and also work with my own personal life, like with my father to make sure that I could get my residency as soon as possible once once our family petition had become current. Unfortunately, it was one of those things where like I was the last, I was like one of the only recipients of the petition in terms of like actually being able to change my status that way because all of my older siblings had already aged out. Yeah. But luckily they did have their own way. They found the, they found their spouses that they love dearly they have children and mm. you know it's all well and good now but for a while there it was pretty tenuous and to add into like college it was a bit hard and at that point what was even harder was like trying to choose between those two schools was hard because my father and well my mom in my junior year of high school had passed away and I remember it was like about a year later that I had to make this decision and it was really kind of hard to be like the youngest child and everyone else was way older, had their own life. And then for me to kind of really make a decision for myself and tell my father like, hey, I'm, I'm going to go away for college. I'm going to try to make this work. Like Berkeley feels like the one. And like it turned out to be the one. They had the most kind of resourcing. But it was one of those things where I feel like he must have taken it a little bit personally. Like I was trying to like mm -hmm. run away from him or whatnot. But ultimately, I think we were very happy with the outcome of things. John, that's really just truly amazing, an amazing story. You know, what was it like? Just I know you, you ended up getting super involved in college, but what was it like to be super involved and then graduate and then really have all these things kind of change in your life? And then you're coming out and now you're in the workplace and trying to get a job. And then you also decide to eventually come back to the MBA program. Like that's a really quick transition. What was that like going through 
those phases? And then how did you navigate? It seems like you'd be doing a ton, especially like to back to back to back. What was that like? And what was going through your mind as you were experiencing those in real time? Yeah, I think like one of the biggest things I was experiencing, like I think simultaneously while I was kind of undergoing through all of those changes was just this self-realization that because of my upbringing or just the fact that I'm an immigrant and, you know, under-resourced background, for me, like the whole aspect of like of job hunting as a professional was something that none of my family members had experienced. LinkedIn was just popping up at that point. And, you know, it was one of those things where like I had to kind of navigate the search on my own and not only like navigate it on my own, but also like kind of figure out like what would be like a good fit for me. And I think one of the things that came out of that was actually I fell into recruiting for that very reason of like in the under-resourced like community and just realizing like there isn't really a lot of resourcing for job placements or job recruiting for a lot of, you know, under-resourced communities like mine. And coming from my background, I was like, for me, I want to learn how do people get jobs? And so luckily, one of my fraternity siblings, I was actually pretty involved in the Sigma Epsilon Omega in Berkeley, which is the gay and queer and now all-inclusive co-ed fraternity in Berkeley. One of my alumni there had reached out to me that they had an opening at one of the recruiting firms that they were working at, which was a pretty small boutique legal recruiting firm. And I decided to start interviewing there. At the time, I was actually also deciding between law school and getting Mm. a job full time. I think like just as an aside, I actually had applied to law school twice before applying to Haas. Um, Oh, wow. And then Haas is the one that won that won the race. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was one of those things where like I was choosing between grad school and like working full time and getting that experience. And I think for me, I I just wanted to take a few more years to get some like real life experience, get some professional experience, and even just like get a sense of like what is it like to work in corporate America, even if uh, it's a small firm. And so for me, like I interviewed there and ultimately I ended up declining my offers to go to law school right after undergrad and ultimately just started my work recruiting and kind of lear- learning the lay of the land when it comes to recruiting. Yeah. John, what was that experience like going from being a student and then being a professional? And then it sounds like you were really intentional even during that phase in terms of you knew that there was going to be something Next, how did you figure out that the MBA was going to be the right course for you? And what were you thinking about school selection and like program or like what you were hoping to get out of it, that experience? Yeah, yeah. So I think like for me, like the the MBA had always been kind of in the back of my mind, even as early as like Summer Bridge. So like that summer when I actually did the program that um, college collegiate prep uh, to go into fall, I actually was walking around Berkeley and I remember very specifically stopping at the gate at Haas, like the, I think it's the William Conke gate. And I remember just like stopping there and like getting a picture right in front of the gate with like my summer mentor at that time. And I said to myself, like someday I'm going to attend this. I don't know if it's the undergrad program. I don't know if it's the MBA program, but someday I'm going to attend the school. Um, And for me, like the school selection piece, it was kind of like a couple of years of working professionally and working in technology and startups. For me, I'd always been interested in technology and specifically like how do people kind of solve problems through technology and platforms and even products in general. I think 
for me, the school selection really came down to the proximity of program to like the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and, you know, the startup world. And around the time when I actually had started to apply, this was actually in in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, I had actually already gone through like three different startups by that point. Mm. So I was one of the first early hires for Rivian Automotive for their California team. So I was working with hiring managers in like the self-driving, autonomous, uh, electrical hardware, infotainment teams, supporting them. Mm. When that opportunity like came to a close, I went to alt school back when they were still like called alt school and, and had not gone through the rebranding. And I helped them kind of make their SaaS pivot for software before they were kind of going through a micro school model which was very interesting. They really wanted to kind of build a lot of like hubs where you can basically plop your child from like one school to another and have all the information and like learning the modules kind of in place so that your child doesn't have to miss a beat when they're transferring schools. But ultimately they needed to go into a SaaS model. And so I kind of helped hire on the tech team and the rest of the sort of admin team that needed to be there to make that pivot. And as a recruiter, I was that was really interesting to me, like the whole technical side of recruiting and sort of like what, how do you kind of align product development with like key business goals, such as like a giant pivot. Um, mm. And then lastly, when their restructured happened, and this was around the time they were about to get acquired by Higher Ground, I joined Wonder School as their first technical recruiter. This was just post series A for them. And it was again, one of those builders sort of uh, opportunities where I wanted to, you know, get my hands dirty, build processes from the ground up and work with really talented hiring managers to really um, hire the best people that we can. And so when the pandemic hit and, you know, I was working in recruiting, as you know, when anytime there's a recession, guess who's the first to go? Recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, it was one of those things where where I was really having to think about my career trajectory where I really enjoyed like bringing people together, bring opportunities to new people, hiring people on and then onboarding them. At that point at Wonder School before the restructure post during like the pandemic, like I was starting to do a, a lot more HR work as well. Uh, and I think that what I really kind of realized in my journey in recruiting people ops is that there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into recruiting and a lot of emotional labor as well when it comes to onboarding new people, upholding company culture, and then also even like dealing with departures. Like you're not only just thinking about your own departure, but you're probably also thinking about, you know, your colleagues that you help bring into this uh, company. And so for me, I wanted to have still maintain that relational aspect of working with teams cross-functionally, um, but I wanted to work in something that didn't have as much of like emotional toll. And I think mm -hmm. product, product management really stood out to me because there is the aspect of delighting customers when you're solving their problems and there's still, of course, a little bit of that kind of push and pull when the product is buggy or there's features that are missing. But again, there's kind of like that that negotiation that takes place between like product people, engineers, and then also customer stakeholders that really kind of still capture the recruiting process to some extent without necessarily, at least for me, feeling like it's not 
feeling it's also you're also holding someone's job to some extent, you know, or you're mm. having to sell a job or offboard folks. There's it's just it feels a little bit more detached from some of that emotional piece. Mm. By the time you started the MBA program, you had all these experiences and then somehow you ended up doing the full-time program also and essentially having full-time work uh, at the same mm-hmm. time. Can you share just maybe briefly on that? And you were also super passionate. I know you shared, you know, Q at Haas, you know, you were part of that as part of, during your time at Haas. Can you explain how you managed all of those things? And also, could you share a bit about Q at Haas and, and what the organization does as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think for those listening here, I was one of the double bears that got through the Cal Advantage program in 2020. I remember just like finally selecting, applying to Berkeley, and then eventually getting in uh, around the time where like I was looking at my email and between the rejection emails for recruiting jobs, there was one that popped up about the Cal Advantage program. And initially, it like one of my friends had actually received that email instead of me. And so I had them forward it to me and I had to start emailing admissions and to make sure that it was for real. And then, and then later on, I just started committing through the process and went through that process, got into the program around like late June, the applications came out in like May. And then as soon as I actually got in, I started working through the logistics of going through school on a Zoom setting. I started reaching out to actually a couple of my former colleagues at Wonder School who were still in the organization after they had initially restructured because I expressed interest in moving into product management. It's one of those things where like the network effect is real when it comes to uh, Haas, because one of my mentors was in the product team at Wonder School, and she had, and she was actually my main mentor going through the Haas application process. Uh, she went to the evening and weekend program, actually. So shout out to Tess Peppers. And I had reached out to her like pretty, pretty much around like July. You know, she congratulated me and everything. Uh, and I said, I just openly said like, hey, like if there's an, any opportunity uh, for me to kind of intern at Wonder School and uh, help out with product development, let me know. And I think it was like a couple months later, I just started Berkeley and we were doing like week zero, uh, had a couple of classes. And then by like early September, the VP of engineering at Wonder School, Javier at that point, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, like, We need someone in the product team to basically kind of run through all of our products, like product features, and make sure they're working correctly. Are you interested in interning with us in that? And of course, like for me, that sort of opportunity was was really exciting. I will say that I am very fortunate to be to have been able to intern at startups that have been able to pay a market rate for um, MBAs. And so for me, like I kind of took on that role and then started, you know, working simultaneously while attending micro econ classes and all the core classes (laughs) in between. And then I remember just like hopping from like Zoom, Zoom to Zoom because, Mm. you know, sometimes our classes would be stacked and then I have a meeting with Wonder School like right after and then a class again and then something about consulting um, prep, because at that point I was still, you know, uh, really looking into consulting as well. And so I went through the whole recruiting process as well, both the fall for the summer and then fall full-time again the following year, while also working full-time. And getting involved at Haas, I think, was also kind of, it was really good for me to at least have one 
organization to be really passionate about to like make connections. And so Qt Haas was easily one of the best organizations for me to join. I ended up really connecting with how Qt Haas pivoted their programming for an online setting for our year for the coming out week. And even just listening to the coming out monologues was really powerful for me. And I knew that I wanted to get involved in that for the subsequent year for when we might have a hybrid option or a full like in-person option. And so just working with them to do all of that as the VP of coming out week with Ian McLean was just like really tremendous. But I will say that it was definitely hard. Working full-time and also doing the MBA full-time really kind of hindered me in terms of like socialization. So I have to be honest and say that like I had to really look at my options and there were only like a couple of them. It was like work full-time, go to school full-time, be involved at Q at Haas or socialization. And like, I think I just dropped socialization like a lot. And there were still a couple of times where I was still bumping into people my second year even all the way through like this orientation, like our, our last week at Haas. And I was like, oh, I'm John. I'm still doing the intro and stuff. And I realized I'd not actually been in a class with them or seen them in person before. But for me, I think what the biggest takeaway for me was it's like it's all about how you want to set your journey at Haas because it's like you could do a lot of things and everything. However, it's really up to you and how you wanted to manage your time, what you want to get the most out of it. For me, it was easily like I wanted to work and you know apply what I'm learning in the startup setting. And then also just like build community where I can and really focus on the few people, if not you know, some people that were really going to add a lot of value to my Haas experience versus trying to meet everyone. And there has to be that intentionality that needs to be there in order to kind of make it all work. John, you know, as we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, you know, one of the things that you shared about is just areas of focus now for you. I know some areas of childcare shortage and women reproductive rights are, are two areas that you're passionate about. I wanted to just give you an opportunity to share a bit about your passion and, and why it's so important for you. And then maybe we finish off with um a lightning round. We've been doing some, trying something new here. So maybe mm -hmm. uh, some words of wisdom for you in a lightning round. But first, you know, your the topics that you're super passionate about, would love to hear more about your passion behind it and thoughts for folks who might be listening on the podcast from you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me as a queer ally, as well as just like a man in general, it's very important for me to acknowledge that women's reproductive rights are very much threatened at this point with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, I know that there's some multitude of ways to get involved, such as, you know, donating to Planned Parenthood or downright activism, as well as working with your legislative folks to petition for them to advocate for broader laws to protect reproductive rights. But I think for me, one of the one of the aspects that, that's really important reproductive rights is that, at least for me, like growing up, my family, like my family had always told me how I was, quote unquote, a miracle baby. And the reason why is that my mom had me at a very old age of like 36. 
And I had had like a lot of different defects potentially. And, you know, the scoliosis was one of them. And I remember very adamantly that like my parents, they were told by like their doctor, like, hey, you might want to terminate this pregnancy if you want to, but we can't perform it here because at that point it was like a Catholic hospital. But uh, my parents specifically were very religious. They were Catholic. And of course, they were, um, they erred on the side of, you know, whatever God has provided them, you know, they'll work it out and they'll be able to um, navigate as they go. However, I think fundamentally, when I kind of hear that story back, the different thing for sure that struck to me was that my mom chose to keep me. Like that is full on what she did. And it was one of those things where like, you know, she had her options to go where she could terminate me. And of course, you know, sometimes it it becomes a crying call for her folks to use my story as a way to say like, oh, what if you were this? What if you were that? And really, like for me, one of the things I just always say is that my mom had a choice um, and she made that choice. And the thing is, um, in this country, we're not giving women the choice anymore. And that is the thing that's really scary. And I think that we really need to reevaluate ourselves, whether we're looking at this from a, you know, from a religious standpoint, which is at the same time should not be the case when it comes to reproductive rights. But also just like look at the lack of infrastructure that we have when it comes to like post baby. You know, a lot of the times so like we're so fixated on the fetus and the embryo and we don't even have like universal pre-K. For example, we have very like patchwork resources for underprivileged mothers, but it's really usually a cyclical sort of damage to some extent because a lot of these programs, when you look at the crux of it, like TANF or other sort of uh, low-income services, is that in order for you to get these services, you have to meet like an income threshold. And when you kind of start to go over that income threshold, they're like, oh, we, you can't get the service anymore so it's mm -hmm. like it becomes a cycle of poverty a lot of the time and especially when we look at you know post-pandemic and the fact that a lot of women haven't been able to return to the workforce because there isn't available child care for them you know and, mm -hmm. and that is one of the things that wonder school is trying to fix today is you know our child care shortage um, and empowering providers to run their business efficiently but at the crux of it it's like we are expecting so much, you know, of women and determining a lot of decisions and body autonomy that we shouldn't be determining. But at the same time, stripping away basic needs and basic sustenance for, for those in need. And it becomes one of those things where it's like, how hateful can we be to someone that we were going to, that we would subject to this for them to have this sort of life and for us to dictate for them to have this life. And so for me, it's, um, you know, however the Haas community can get involved, I really hope that we stand with our women at Haas and our other community members to really uplift their voices and ensure that this is, that row isn't the, the end, but the beginning of something even better for reproductive rights. That's awesome, John. Yeah, you know, as we close out, John, we'd love to do our tradition and on the podcast. It's been awesome to hear your story and would love to do a, a lightning round here, uh, maybe a two or three questions and maybe get some words of wisdom from you to share with our listeners. Absolutely. Let's hit it. All right. First question, John, is there one or a couple defining leadership principles or DLPs that resonate with you personally? I think for me, the, the biggest one for sure is student always. 
And the reason why um, I think that that really strikes with me is that it's a really good way to approach any sort of like work situation, life situation, even just like things that you're kind of confused about. And if you kind of approach it from being a student always and that approaching it as a way that like you don't know everything and that there's always a learning opportunity there. Like I think it's really surprised me in a lot of different ways in my life and applying being a student always, whether it's looking at new uh, ways of thinking when it comes to product development, looking at uh, different perspectives for customer engagement or even just customer needs, for example, in the work setting. And even just like taking a one step higher and of even trying to see like what is the business uh, need for this or how are we going to navigate like new business environments like post-pandemic and all of that. And I think if we have that student mindset, it's really more of like discover as you go and less daunting for the most part. Yeah. Jana, second question. What's one piece of advice that you give someone either thinking, going through, or coming out of the MBA program? Huh. Good question there. I think one of the best advice I could give would probably be something along the lines of expect the unexpected. And the reason mm, why, <laughs> exactly. And the reason why is that I feel like in every sort of like scenario or even just like life in, in general, I think our generation has had it the most, but like in our millennial and like Gen Z sort of sprinkled in there. Like we've been through so many like crises that it doesn't feel like a crisis anymore or like it feels like everything's in crisis. And so a lot of the times, you know, when we're making like big decisions such as like career or going back to school or like even, you know, whether you're finding a partner, for example, like all of mm -hmm. these things, like there isn't ever like a perfect timing. And there's also, like, from my perspective, there isn't really a perfect job either. And so it's really like a give and take when you're kind of looking at your experiences and what you want to prioritize. Because, you know, we can drink out of the fire hose and do everything that we can. But that's a quick recipe to burn out. And then also kind of just like a quick way to disappointment if you're always expecting something and you're not ready to, to and you're not ready for the unexpected. Yeah, absolutely. And last question, John, what's one thing you hope to see in the future, either personally or beyond yourself? Mm -hmm. I think for me, one of the things I really want to see in the future is a lot more sort of integration with technology and government. And the reason why is, you know, I'm seeing a lot of tech startups that are working in the social impact space and uh, platforms like Wonder School, where I work at, as well as Binti, that works with social workers and um, foster care adoptions. Like these sorts of platforms are really transforming a lot of the way that, go that governments are processing information are navigating like spaces within their communities. And what I want to see is, you know, hopefully a lot more tech enablement as well as like empowering under-resourced community with technology to actually get access to these services, to these resources, even online learning, for example, like that is a huge kind of equalizer for folks who are, you know, unable to work the standard, you know, nine to five of like school schedule. For me, there's really a lot of room for technology to empower government and government agencies to 
do the best that they can and actually make the impact that they intend to do so. And so hopefully, like I think in the future, we'll see a lot more tech within our government fields and then, you know, a lot more smoother sort of work and, you know, lifting communities along the way. Yeah, well, John, man, it's been great to have you on the podcast today. Just a truly amazing story and amazing journey. Just want to thank you again for making time to join us today. And yeah, super excited to have been in conversation with you here. Thank you so much, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears.